Hey guys, welcome to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What is new? What is happening? Um, I'm excited about today's episode uh, because today's episode is months and months in the making. Uh, There's something interesting about understanding that in order to get anywhere in this business, in order to uh, get uh, people to work with you, in order to get a guest on the show, you have to just be relentless. Uh, You have to be relentless and you really have to want it. And there's a difference between being relentless and annoying. You have to find that fine line. Um, But uh, today's guest took me quite some time to actually nail down because he is one of the busiest. He is the most sought after cinematographer in the business today. Um, Mr. Greg Frazier is on the show. I'm super excited to have him on. And for those of you who don't know who he is, do yourself a favor Go to IMDb and type in his name and check out the laundry list of amazing fucking movies that this guy has worked on. And he shot some of the prettiest images that I've seen in film in a long time. Um, And I know that both myself and my cinematographer, David Krita, have been big fans of him for years. Um, And if you go and look, look look at the laundry list of stuff, okay? So let's go back and start at Let Me In, right? The American remake of Let the Right One In. How gorgeous was that movie? Those yellow tones were just stunning. Amazing fucking movie to watch. Uh, The transition into The Huntsman, Snow White and the Huntsman, that movie was gorgeous to look at. I remember not really giving a shit about that story, but seeing the trailers and and going like, who the fuck is shooting this? This is beautiful. And then as I was doing the research for the show, I was sort of going through the list and going, oh my God, he shot that and he shot this, Killing Him Softly with Brad Pitt. How cool was that movie? Wasn't James, James Gandolfini was in that? And that, that super slow motion car crash sequence that happens in that movie? Oh my God, right? And then fast forward a bit, Vice, Zero Dark Thirty. This guy worked with Catherine Bigelow. Catherine Bigelow is one of the best, in my opinion, one of the best action directors out there, period. And not to mention that she's doing like hard-hitting, really important films like Hurt Locker, Zero Dark Thirty, Detroit. But he shot Zero Dark Thirty. Amazing movie. Some of like those horrible torture sequences look beautiful. Like absolutely beautiful. And the invasion sequences that they did at the end and like the night vision stuff that was in that movie right and then i know there's a lot of you moviegoers that are like mike those aren't our, those aren't our type of movies it sounds like this guy just does like you know on the fringe art films that's not what we're into okay all right how about a little little indie called rogue one <laughs> which if you've been following me on instagram at mike petchy on instagram you saw my post i think rogue one i'm going to say this and it's going to piss off a lot of you people I think Rogue One is the best of the new Star Wars. I think of the post-George Lucas Star Wars films, Rogue One is the best and by far the best looking Star Wars movie. Followed by, I'm going to say this is going to piss you off too, Solo. I think Solo was the second best looking one. But Rogue One, lens choices, coverage, lighting. I mean, just the scenes that happen... Uh, in the Rebels' uh, hangar bay. I just wanted to be there. I could physically feel it. For the first time, I could actually physically feel the air and smell the air. 
in those sequences. I was like, who shot this? Oh! Greg shot that too, huh? I wonder what he's doing next. Oh, you know, little movie called The Batman. <laughs> yeah, he's shooting the Batman movie. He was literally shooting the Batman movie as I was talking to him on Instagram. And he's like, look, I can't really get on this right now because I'm shooting the Batman. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, no big deal. And then he was like, well, COVID's happening. So let's try to make this work. Uh, so, yeah. Can't wait for that. And we've all seen sneak peek images of that stuff. Right? The Batmobile looks kind of red. That's going to be really fun. And then, oh, hey, guess what? He's also doing another movie that I cannot fucking wait for. Dune. Dune. Denis' next film. You know, the director that has done no wrong, the director that has made films that 10 years from now will be definitive of this era. Like, talk about a career. Talk about an opportunity that this guy has taken and made for himself to get to this point where he works with a laundry list of the best directors in Hollywood right now. I'm so excited to have him on the show. I cannot say enough. I cannot hype this guy up enough. I'm fucking flavor flave with this shit today. <laughs> I'm going to hype, hype, hype him up, man. Um, and it was a great interview because I've already done it. As you know, I record these and I do this separately. Um, Really good interview. Uh, he was a sweetheart for, for allowing me to take time out of his day. He's got a bunch of different things going on at once. We had to actually stop the interview at one point and start it back up. So I'm sure you won't even notice because Liam's going to do such a great job uh, putting the show together. No pressure, Liam. Um, but, uh, I, dude, I could have talked to him for about two and a half hours, but he literally could only give me about an hour. So uh, it's good stuff. A lot of stuff that he doesn't talk about on other podcasts. This is like all original material. You're getting questions from me, another working director, not necessarily just a moviegoer. So we get deep into stuff. We talk about stuff like stand-ins. We talk about lighting. Um, we get into uh, how he chooses his lenses. We get into a little bit of uh, his input on uh, the Rogue One stuff. So we talk a little bit about that. Uh, it's a great interview. It's a solid interview, um, and uh, I love it. I think it's great. I'm very, very, very happy and feel very blessed that he was on the show. And I'm doing this hard work for you guys. Man, I'm bugging people for you. Sending obnoxious uh, messages through Instagram and causing people to stop their homeschooling <laughs> to jump on the show and talk shit. So I hope you guys appreciate it. And show me your appreciation, please, by supporting the show right? Tell your friends about it. Write to me. Say, Mike, we want some promotional images to support the show. We're going to post about this shit. We're excited about this one. If you guys like this episode, repost it, please. Repost the graphics for this episode. Tell your fucking friends about it. And there's a group of hardcore fan listeners on this show that do it every time. There's a specific listener that listens to the show that I'm going to get a shout out to that literally writes back all his favorite moments from the show. He practically transcripts each episode. Big shout out to you, my friend. I really appreciate the fact that you like the show that much and uh, in showing that appreciation. And if you're new to the show, if you've come over here because you're clickbait people and now you're here and I got you, captive audience, do yourself a favor. 
go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There you can check out all of our episodes. And I know it's a little daunting because we're over 80 episodes at this point, but I curate the shows based upon the subject material. So you can go there, click on uh, whatever uh, subject you want. Directors, DPs, cinematographers, uh, chefs. Uh, pick the episodes you like, and then you can go on a crazy little adventure with me. So go do that at inlovewiththeprocess.com. There you can also help sponsor the show. Go to the sponsors page. It's a bunch of different options to help support us without digging into your own pocket. So we'll get into that in the mid-roll reads, but until then, let's not hold back, right? Let's get right into it. So, you know the deal. Once again, this is like episode three or four or five that I'm telling you to go grab a fucking pen and paper and write down some of these notes that, that, that Greg is sharing with us. And as always, these are things that he does in order to succeed on his level or for him to get to where he is based upon the history that he's been through at the time he came into the industry. So a lot of stuff that he talks about may not necessarily work for you, but there's a lot of stuff that seems to be very consistent on this show. I think you guys need to write those things down if you're trying to figure this out. A lot of you young cinematographers out there. Okay, so you know the deal. Grab those noise-canceling headphones. Find that comfy couch, pen and paper, maybe a beer. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Hey, Greg, thanks for being on the show, my man. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, Suit, like I was saying offline, uh, really big fan of your work. I've been following your stuff for, for years, actually. Um, and when I was just sort of doing a little bit of research before we did the show, there was a bunch of stuff that you had done that I didn't realize you had done. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I love that thing, too. <laughs> uh, that's cool. What, what stuff didn't you realize? I mean, that's, it's good to know because sometimes uh, you know, I forget about stuff as well. You know, and it's funny. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday and I realized um, some stuff I did I'd forgotten about. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That first um, short film that I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like how you like how to destroy angels. That music video for Trent yeah. Reznor and his and his wife. Man, that video was amazing, and I had thank you no idea that it was your work. I just saw that on IMDb, and I was like, oh, that makes sense, and that makes sense. How you got hooked up with that director, and then was that the transition for you to Huntsman and all that sort of stuff? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if we did Huntsman after that or before that, but yes, uh, you know what? No, we did Huntsman after it. You're right. Um, but I've been working with Rupert for quite a while uh, before that mm-hmm. point, and. You know, done quite a few commercials with him, and um, I think I started shooting commercials with him in like 2007. You know, when I was still living in Australia, mm-hmm. and you know, thankfully, well, a lot of the commercials that uh, that he was doing was over that were overseas, like Argentina or Europe, or and so for me to get there from Australia was pretty simple and pretty easy. So, um, you know, we had a we had a very good relationship already, and then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, How to Destroy Angels was part of that. So, yeah, I, I'm really proud of that. It's funny you say that one because I'd forgotten all about that until a couple of days ago. And I was like, because <laughs> I was explaining to somebody, it was in Australia actually, um, why I decided to make the move to California, to, to, to America. You yeah. know, there's, you know, 
like Hollywood is kind of like the, beckons a lot of people, actors, actresses, you know, technicians, and 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 for us, we were we were really not inspired by the stardom of Hollywood as it stands. You know, where we live in Venice, which is as, almost as far away as you can get from Hollywood, mm-hmm. while still being, you know, able to access it. What we loved about California was the fact that it's really simple. Like the weather and the the vibe out here is just fantastic, and it reminds us a bit yeah. of Australia. But the the access to um, slightly bigger uh, and more involved work, you know, how to destroy angels mm-hmm. was an example that I brought up because I'd done music videos in Australia, and there's generally a kind of a cap to the music videos and. The directors that are doing music videos in Australia are doing a great job with with no money. You know, they're coming up with some really clever ideas, and but there's still only fifteen thousand or ten thousand or something that's very yeah, limiting. Yeah. Particularly in those days when I say in those days, like a, I'm a geriatric, but in those days when we were shooting only <laughs> film, you know, and mm-hmm. digital and five Ds weren't an option uh, at that point. So, you know, How to Destroy Angels was a fantastic one because uh, when I came to the US. You know, I did a couple of music videos. I did a Arcade Fire music video mm-hmm. with Spike Jones, and then that thing with Rupert. And I was like, "This is awesome. This is the stuff that dreams are made of." You know, we get to work with some amazing bands doing mm-hmm. amazing music. I mean, that Arcade Fire album is still one of my favorite albums. And I yeah, yeah and, and right. I didn't realize it when I was shooting with them in Austin how good the album was. So mm. yeah. It's it's you bring up a good point, and I've talked about it on the show because myself, I've been a director for about nineteen years, and I've mostly been a director on the East Coast, and I just recently moved to the West Coast because I was feeling kind of the similar thing. Where if you're not in one of the hubs, if you're not in uh, like Los Angeles, honestly, uh, you, you start to feel that cap. There's that cap on music video budgets. There's that cap on on uh, being able to hang out with actors and especially being a director trying to get movies off the ground. It's all about who you know and who you're drinking beers with, really. So um, making that move was such an important part for my my career, too. So, um, And and speaking of of getting access and working with directors, I mean, the laundry list of just amazing directors that you have been able to work with uh, from early on, at least in the film career, is, is just outstanding. How did you... Let's start at the beginning. Like, how did you get started in this business? I, I, I think I read somewhere you started as a photographer, right? I studied photography, yeah. Yeah. So at high school, you know, like most people in high school, I didn't really have much of a, uh, an idea what I was doing. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it was a very blurry future that I had. I, I knew I enjoyed uh, doing videos and I was editing VHS to VHS. I knew <laughs> that I liked doing uh, make, uh, taking stills and printing 35 mil black and white and like there are mm. things at school that I enjoyed and 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 subsequently because because I enjoyed them then I excelled at them you know not excelled excelled but I I was that was the, that was I was the best at photography of all of my classes doesn't mean I was mm. the best of the, at school but I was that was the, the thing that I was the best at so it kind of made sense that I would then just keep that ball rolling and applied for a photography college in Melbourne, which is RMIT, um, very, very highly regarded photography college. Mm. Or so they told us. 
And um, <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that because they were fantastic. Um, but, you know, great lecturers and, and, and a very good fundamental basis of uh, stills, you know. And mm. again, Melbourne is a fantastic city. It's a very cultural and, and very diverse city. And uh, it's a great place to, 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 to be an artist. You know, it's a great place to do art and to be, because you feel supported by society in general and by your friends and by, um, by, by, by the government. There's, there's, there's arts grants and all sorts of right. things that they can give right, you. Right, right. So it, it's, it's a little bit like, um, it's a bit of a hub for, um, for artists. And as a photographer, you know, I loved art photography, but ultimately there's only so much you can do. And I also tended to, uh, photographers tend to have a thing generally. That's not always the mm. case. So you, I'm sure there'll be people listening that could be like, you don't know what you're talking about, but generally <laughs> photographers have a thing. They are a dot, 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 dot photographer. They right, are a black and white right. portrait photographer. They are right. a, a landscape um, dusk photographer. They do, you know, stuff at night in fog and backlight. And, you know, there's a thing they do. And, yeah. and those things are amazing because they finesse them and they work really hard at making them amazing. You've got those great photographers that just, I kind of do their thing and they do it extraordinarily well. Um, my biggest problem was that I could not do one thing. I'm, I got too bored and I, and I wasn't <laughs> really, uh, it's not that I wasn't uh, hardworking by any stretch. It was more that I have a very short attention span. So, mm. you know, once I've done 10 portraits for a series, I don't want to see another person. I want to look at a product <laughs> for the next six months. Yeah, of course, so, of course. Um, I, I felt a little bit despondent with um, photography as it stood at that point in time. Um, I still loved taking photos. I still loved making images. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I joined a, 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 a photography and, um, uh, and film making studio as a, um, as a cleaner when I was at university. And, you know, I got to know the photographers and the filmmakers and, 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 and while I was also doing, some some professional photography i was also helping out the directors as a director's assistant and as a runner and like just just basically making uh you know making a, a a mess of things and trying to put myself always into the picture when people were hiring crew mm -hmm. uh, at that time i wasn't a dp but i was i knew i, I wanted to to push into the film industry be it as a, a director or a dp or something like i knew that that's kind of where the where the bicycle was going, you know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then eventually, I mean, you know, I started shooting some projects for, for some of my buddies and uh, some of them got really successful. Like, again, I was talking about a, the first short film that I shot was a film called Cracker Bag that, that won a Palm d'Or at, uh, at Cannes in 2003. So wow. for, for the director, it's, uh, that's a better award than a DP, but still it, it's kind of testament to... It just it just put another little tick on the on the resume, you know. Yeah, yeah. Palm Door winning, um, you know, I did a couple of international music videos that were successful in the UK, and um, you know, and but meanwhile, we're all young and dumb, you know, we're all dumb filmmakers that are just doing what we think's right, and turns out that a lot of it was really good. And I look back at that stuff, and I'm like, those directors that I worked with, who are still my buddies to this day, you know. Um, 
and I'm and I still work with to this day, thankfully. Um, yeah, we're yeah, incredibly yeah. incredibly talented, and are incredibly talented. And me being able to kind of um, feed off them and then feed off me, like I felt like it was a very much a Melbourne at that period of time, you know, around 2000, 2000, you know, to sort of 2008. It was a very fertile time in advertising and music videos mm. in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of that stuff's changed recently. And, and, and many of the people that listen to this show are people that are just sort of looking for like the real stories, the real way that uh, to crack in the business. And, and everybody's always looking for the rhythm and the, and the, uh, the steps that they should take to get in. And I consistently am telling folks like it's constantly changing. Like it's yeah. changed since I started this shit 19 years ago. I'm sure it's changed since you started this shit. Like, uh, doing music videos is a much different thing these days. Budgets are like, God damn, budgets are nothing now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really difficult to get into that. But the thing that's fascinating about what you're talking about is it's kind of similar to what I did, which is um, get in with a group of friends and get in the ground up and start from a crew position and work yeah. your way up that way, which totally. is interesting. Yeah. You know, and then ultimately you're owed favors by people. And if you want to shoot something for yourself, you've got some buddies that owe you a favor and that come out mm-hmm. like, the, like the Amish building a barn, you know, we all chip in to make somebody's <laughs> movie. And, um, it, it, and you're right. And, and I, I also get asked all the time about what advice I can give. And the problem is, is that I'm, I, I can't give advice in the sense that I can't tell, you know, um, 18 year old Jane blogs or Joe blogs how to get a start. I mean, all I can say is shoot and, and, and find people who are very good at their jobs of directors and, and offer to shoot stuff for them. You know, I, I remember back in years gone by, there's a, there's, a, there's a fantastic friend of mine, director named Nash Edgerton, who I did some short films with like Spider and Lucky and which were mm-hmm. got a little bit of a following on, you know, on social media back in th- that day. Um, but but I saw a music video that he did for a band called um, Eskimo Joe, and mm-hmm. it's a song called Liar. And I would recommend, um, personally, if everyone pauses this podcast right now and does a Google search <laughs> for that music video, because I think it's one of the best music videos I've ever seen. Because it, it had no money. Um, they had probably two rolls of film. I think they shot two takes. It was a single take, and they did two takes or something. Um, they, they dress these guys up in suits. It's just a great idea. It's a great concept for a no money music video. And it's mm-hmm. got, it's got, it sets a tone and a mood and a, um, it, it's everything about filmmaking that's fantastic. It, and it, it, it tells a story slowly over the course of a period of time and you learn the, you, you understand the reasoning for the beginning at the end. Like it's, it's, a, it's a, to me, it's textbook perfect music video. Um, so, I wrote to him. I saw that. I wrote to him. I, I can't remember actually if it was an email. I might have actually just posted him my um, my reel um, mm. on VHS. Like again, going back, I feel very old <laughs> talking about this now. That's yeah, um, all good, man. <laughs> but but you know, I posted to him and said, "Dude, just FYI, I love that music video. Um, I would love to work with you." He was in Sydney. I was in Melbourne. You know, something came up. He called me. I drove to Sydney. You know, slept on uh, someone's couch shot his mm-hmm. video so it was like i i hunted 
people whose work I respected and loved. And um, thankfully, a lot of those people I already knew in Melbourne. So the people that I didn't know, um, like the, 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 the Nashes of the world, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I wrote to and said, I'd like to work with you. And uh, here's what I've done. And, you know, so, you know, you know, I wasn't aggressive, but I was also, I was passionate. Um, you know, I was like, I want to do this. Like, well, I think when I know, and this, this goes down the line too, when I'm, when I'm shooting a, a, a movie or I'm pitching on a movie or I'm, I'm meeting with a director about a film. Um, like, I know if I can hit it out of the park or not. Like, I know if, if I get it. Like, there are a couple of films I met on that I just went, I, I, don't, I don't really fully understand this or I don't think I could hit it out of the park. And either I didn't get the movie mm-hmm. or I had to turn the movie down because I, I just realized that I wasn't going to do a good job of it. Uh, and not to say that I have hit everything out of the park. It's very presumptuous to assume that. But when you read something or you meet someone and you talk to them about something, you go, well, I, I do. It's like, yep, yeah, no, I, I know how to do this and I, and I'll, I could do an, I do a great job of it. And, and to interrupt you, is that, is that something that you're discover? Is that something that you understand as soon as you read a script or is that something that you need to read a script and then talk to the director about? Like how does well, that I need to talk to work? the director because ultimately, um, when I read a script, I read it in my voice and mm-hmm. my voice may not be the right voice. And then I speak to the director and, uh, the, you know, there are, there are exceptions to that, um, to that rule. Um, the, the, on let me in, I read that script very quickly and, uh, I hadn't spoken to Matt, uh, Reeves about it. I read the script and when mm-hmm. I love this script, I, and, and then I met with him and I went, that's when I went, um, I mean, when I, after I read the script, I knew that I could do a, a great job. But once I spoke to him, I was convinced I could do a good job of it. Was that, was, was, um, let me in the first big, uh, Hollywood, uh, shoot that you had done or was there one before that? Well, when you say Hollywood, it, we didn't shoot it in Hollywood. Um, it was shot in Albuquerque. It was American. Um, it was probably smaller in, in size than Bright Star, which I'd shot a year earlier. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I, again, I, you know, I did have to join the union. I got the hours up and, and all those things. So yeah, effectively it was. Now, I mean, I will backtrack though and say like, again, when I say I can hit out of the park, I, it, it's not, it's not an underlying confident. I can hit it out of the park. It's a, it, it's a combination of this terrifies the hell out of me, <laughs> but I know if I put my head down and my bum up and I, and I break through it, I can, mm-hmm. I can get this thing. I can, I can, I can nail it. So it's not a, it's not unfortunately, and I, I just want to clarify that because it sounds like, you know, it sounds like every pitch that, um, you know, I hear w- w- when people are overly confident and overly, you know, I'm, I'm not overly confident, but what I am is I, I know if it, if it, if it gives me that, uh, if it scares me enough, mm-hmm. I know that it's, it's something that will, um, that I'll, I'll that I'll put enough energy into that I'll be able to do you know the best job that I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same way for me. Like if I'm not slightly scared of the project, then then I'm not pushing it hard enough. No, so exactly. It's, it's exactly. kind of how you feel. If you yeah, exactly. It's kind of it's that um, you need to kind of. That's why acupuncture is so good. 
acupuncture doesn't hurt. Well, it's not really it's not useful. It's got to it's got to have that. It's got to get into your nerves. It's got to do that thing. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's the same with uh, with film projects. Completely agree. And it's it's really nice to hear. Um, and it's interesting to hear your origin story because it seems. You're, I mean, dude, you're like the the hot ticket right now as far as cinematographers are concerned with the with the stuff that you that you've done and this, like you have two movies on the horizon that I am so excited about. Uh, one being obviously the Batman, and then the other one is fucking Dune. Like I yeah. cannot wait to see Dune. I mean, Denis has done no wrong yeah. uh, so, so far. So, and I know you probably can't talk a lot about it, but no, I mean, no, I can't, I can't. But he, but you're right, he is amazing. And oh my god! I mean, I, listen. All of his films are fantastic. Um, I my my favorite, and this is not to downplay any of his other movies, mm-hmm. but my favorite by far is Prisoners. I think Prisoners. Oh, it's amazing! Is the most delicately told horror story that mm. I've that I've ever seen, and I think the the casting and the acting and the you know, like I I, I love. Um, uh, he's uh, Hugh uh, Hugh Jackman. I love Hugh Jackman as an actor. I did a bit of work with him, second unit on Australia, when he did that, and I, I, mm-hmm. I really like him as a person. And I think uh, as an actor, I think he's really good. That film, I didn't know that Hugh had that film in him huh. as an as an audience member. So yeah, Denis did, and he got it out of him, and it was an incredible, incredible performance. The one that I. You know, even before I had children or children, you know, of that sort of age, I, I was like, man, I, I feel his pain. And, you know, it's probably got one of the most uh, delicate, beautiful endings uh, mm-hmm. of a movie because, I mean, again, I'll be, I'll be quick, but like that movie, you know, you, you go back and you think about all of the um, all of the, the bad things that, that Hugh Jackman's character has done to Paul Dana's character, you know, the, yeah. the beatings and this. And listen, half the half of the audience is going to go, yeah, he thought he hurt his kid. He's going to he's justified <laughs> in doing that. And then mm-hmm. there's another half going, hang on, the kid's simple, and he didn't do that. Like it. So therefore, Hugh Jackman should go to jail. Well, you know, not mm-hmm. Hugh Jackman's character, sorry. And then the other yes. half would be like, no, no, he deserves to come out of the hole and and uh, and, and just relive, go back to his normal life. But the thing is that, that the story doesn't have to tell you that because um, Gyllenhaal's character hears the whistle at the end mm-hmm. and then it cuts, which means that me as a person who said, you know what, let him out of the hole, go and be with his family and don't talk about it again. I get what mm-hmm. I want. And then you, mm-hmm. who believes that he should be put in jail and tried, also get what you want. Because it's, it's the imagination. Your imagination solves the problem for you. So, to- to- totally, totally. Yeah. And this is a constant battle that I have as a director when I'm pitching things to studios and I'm pitching things to people where uh, at that stage early on when you're in the script stage – all the execs really want everything spelled out for them. Like, what's the backstory and how does this work and what, where does this all come from? Mm. And it's it's this hard battle uh, trying to get from that point that you have to get to in order to get the script sold to the point on screen where you're like, cut it out, cut it all out and leave it open-ended because if an audience can start to create their own story, it gets closer to what uh, reading a novel is like. You know what I mean? Where you're reading a book and you can start to create, 
you can start to create those those themes that that don't necessarily exist in the movie, but the movie suggests that they might exist, totally. which I think is amazing. And that's what my favorite movies. If you start looking at like Blade Runner and all those movies, they they leave a lot of that stuff open ended, where you have so much more to talk about days, weeks, months, years after you watch that film. Yeah. You know? Well, that's why I mean I'll be I mean going to a new hope star wars like if you had mm-hmm. to sit there and explain to an audience what a kessel run was and a parsec like <laughs> y- y- you'd be there all for like half an hour just giving the backstory of han solo and the parsec and the and and what's a parsec yeah. is it a unit of time or is it a measure of measure like what you would have to do some serious um serious dialogue to to, to explain that yet the, the the beauty of that script was that it leaves it open-ended, which, and I remember again, as a kid sitting there mm-hmm. debating the Kessel Run, like, and it gave us stuff to talk about. And I watch my <laughs> kids now and they're, they're reading the Lego um, Star Wars book and they're talking about the Sand Trooper and, and which gun is more powerful. Do you reckon that, I mean, we try not to talk too much about weapons and stuff, but like, sure. you know, which, which trooper do you think could beat, do you reckon the Sand Trooper could beat the Flame Trooper or the Shore Trooper? <laughs> and, and I'm listening to this going, well, okay, that's the Star Wars of it all. And, but then there's going back to the story side of things is like, you actually want some, 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 some gaps in, in storytelling. You, you, you need some, things do not need to be explained out in the backstory because I, I think it takes away some of the magic. But, mm-hmm. but again, I mean, I'm not a script writer, so I'm, I, I just can react to, well, but but I mean, you're you're essential for making the, the the film. You're essential for, I mean, you're essentially taking the script and taking the director's vision, and then being the eyes of the audience when you shoot a movie. Yeah. And so, you do know these things. And it, I think the difficult part of pitching, especially as a visual storyteller, because I consider myself a visual uh, director, and a lot yeah. of my stuff is is really kind of pretty. You shot you um, shot some of your own stuff too, right? Yeah, yeah. I started as a as a quote unquote cinematographer, self trained, and yeah. then I recently uh, found you know my brother from another mother, Mr. David Cruda, who shoots most of my new stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but you know that's the difficult thing in the pitch process because when anybody looks at a script, if someone picks up a script, like you said before, you're hearing it through your own voice, you're hearing it through your own style. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to actually write. It's like sometimes I just want to write in a script like. It's going to look good. <laughs> like you just want to let them know, like when you see these images cut together, it's going to be understood. Yeah. And it's really difficult to put that on the page and, and then sell that idea. Unless you're someone like David Lynch or someone that has had that prior history and then that love uh, that people have to just go like throw him some money and see what he does. Yeah, for sure. All right, time to take a break. Uh, I hate to do it because this stuff's so great, um, but uh, you know the deal. It's time for us to thank the men and women that help support the show. And I'm not just talking about you guys at home that are reposting and doing stuff. Those of you who are actually doing it, thank you. The rest of you, hmm, I might be judging. First up, our good friends over at Puget Systems. If you're looking for a brand new computer, if, you're, if your old computer is just not cutting it, 
right? And so you're like, what do I do? Do I got to buy a new Apple? You go look at the price on it. You're like, fuck, this is going to kill me. Well, here's the good news. You don't need to just buy an Apple anymore. You can buy a PC. PCs run. They're stable. They're upgradable. They're affordable. There are a hell of a lot more options with them. You can actually custom build the hardware in that machine to work specifically for what your needs are. Go to PugetSystems.com. There you can choose a baseline system based upon the software you use, which makes things easy. Um, and then they like to communicate with you. You can actually custom build the system. You can talk to them and say, hey, here's how much money I have. And here's what I need. And here's what I want. And they'll run through their weeks and months and years of beta testing and benchmark testing. And they'll tell you what hardware works with what and what is worth the money and what isn't worth the money. It's a great place to form a relationship with a company that will continue to support you and be there for you. But also, it's a great place to build a machine that is going to be smoking fast. I'm in the process of getting a brand new machine from these guys in the next couple of weeks. I am super excited about it. Super fucking excited about it. Um, and for those of you who don't live in the country, who have been like, Mike, I can't get a Puget because they don't ship internationally. Well, here's the good news. They're, they're offering up a consultation program now. You can go to Puget Systems, we'll put the link below. Um, but they're offering up at a starting fee of like 500 bucks. They will walk you through how to build a PC for your needs. They'll tell you what hardware to get. They'll tell you how to put it together. They'll go through the whole process with you. So if you're someone that wants to build your own PC, but you need a bit of a knowledge from these guys, check them out. Go to PugetSystems.com. The links will be below and click those fucking links. Next up, good friends over at Quasar Science, one of the best advancements. I'm sure Greg might. I didn't get a chance to ask him that on the show, but uh, I know he uses a lot of LED lighting. I know he used LED lighting on Rogue One. I know he's been using it on a bunch of different things. But I've read articles about how excited he is about being able to basically grade on set, color grade on set. And all those things come from being able to use LED lights. Uh, and one of the leaders in that world is Quasar Science. Go to quasarscience.com. There they have amazing LED lights, bicolor lights, uh, RGB, rainbow lights, um, all sorts of different stuff. Uh, I have a bunch of tubes in my kit. I have a few bicolor lights in my kit, uh, and I use them all the time. So I'm not saying that LED lights is the only lights to use. There's a light for everything, but a lot of people ask me what's in my kit. I've got Quasar stuff in there. So go to quasarscience.com. Check it out if you're building your own kit and you need something portable, and you need something that is multifunctional. Those guys do great work, so go check them out. Um, and also, if you want to support the show, uh, sign up for a free trial at Audible. So if you use our link below, it's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. The link is below. Um, there, uh, you'll get a access to the website for free for 30 days. You'll get a free audiobook uh, and access to all their content. Uh, listen to it, hang out with it, you're gonna get addicted. You're gonna be addicted to it. There's gonna be a bunch of different books you're gonna want to read. Um, it's not a bad price per month once you get past the 30 days. But if you're in a, a situation where you're like, "Look, I can't really afford that. Let me just do the 30 day trial and then I'll cancel it." Do what you got to do, man. It's fine by us. We still get paid. Okay. So best way to give us a donation if you like the show, if you want more from the show, sign up for our Audible trial uh, link below. And also on In Love With The Process and our sponsors page, you'll find all that stuff, including our deal with uh, Capital One cards. We also have a great deal in those. All that stuff's there. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com backslash sponsors. 
Okay, let's get back into it. Back to more with Greg. Well, skipping ahead, because there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, and I don't want to hold you up all day. Um, you uh, mentioned uh, Star Wars stuff. I honestly think that Rogue One is the by far the best-looking Star Wars film shot, period. Thank you. Uh, I, I think that movie is absolutely gorgeous. I was very excited to hear that you were the one shooting it, and I just watched it again the other day, and I know that there's a, there was a bunch of drama that went on as far as like getting that movie wrapped up and story-wise and everything, but... How was the experience for you working with, uh, like LucasArts and ultimately working for Disney? Like, is it is it still an artful, creative experience, or does it feel like you're working for Walmart over there? No, no, no. It's definitely not the Walmart thing. And you know, big films are are an interesting beast because the bigger the film, the more people have a voice in mm -hmm. the way this film is. Now, um, Star Wars is probably i mean if you talk about feeling ill when you think about something <laughs> the idea of doing a star wars movie and displeasing a lot of people or pleasing a lot of people like it's i mean i feel so much um admiration for for jj abrams and for, for gareth and for um ryan johnson and Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel so much admiration for those boys because talk about, again, talk about feeling terrified. That's, I don't think you could feel more terrified than being the guy that does the first of the new trilogy, you know, or the first spin-off of Star Wars um, because yeah. there's so much writing on it and George Lucas is not involved. And, you know, so it, it, it is very much filmmaker-led, but obviously there is a, there's a course like any film that has uh, has a budget, it needs to sell tickets. And there are people who story people who are kind of on that. And um, no, I think I think that the joy of that and the you know, and and I can say genuinely in hindsight because obviously when you're um, when you're in the middle of any production, you know, even right now in the middle of, of Batman, like. It, it, it's not the best time to talk about it because, well, first of all, you can't. But second of sure. all, it's like being underwater. You, you you can't see what's going on until you're above the water and you can go, ah, this is what happens. Um, no, but it's a perfect situation where we had the opportunity and the resources to make that film better. You know, mm -hmm. and yeah. the, the the outdated system of I say outdated because this is the way most films get made, which is you write a script, yes, you go and shoot mm -hmm. it, yes, mm -hmm. you edit it, yes, and you show it. Now, if you have the opportunity to go back and repair this thing or or, or make that moment better or impactful or, you know, animations do it. They do it all the time. They they sketch, they, they, they do the dialogue, they sketch it out. People might come back a few times to fix up some dialogue. No one ever talks mm -hmm. about Toy Story, how many trips Tom Hanks made into to voice Toy Story, you know? <laughs> that's true. It's no one true. does because that's yeah. the process. And that process is, you know, they, they storyboard it, they line draw it. I mean, I don't fully know the process of animation, but they, they do a rough pass with either the, not the actors, but other actors. And, you know, 
and they, they come up with a film. So they all sit there and they go, all right, this film is ready to be colored in and properly mixed or voiced. Uh, yeah, it makes all the sense of the world. Like As a director, I love to try to schedule at least a few reshoot days after you're in the edit room because no matter what, there's no such thing as perfection. And the, the, the thing no. that's so amazing about making a movie is that even if you make a real piece of shit, even if it's a crappy movie, it's a miracle that it was even made. Yeah. Uh, and so there's, you always end up, I always end up in the edit room and I'm like, man, if I had just got an insert or two things, then I would have furthered the suspension of disbelief in the scene. And I just need to further that. I need to shoot these inserts in order to get that. And I like, it, it's true. I think that should be part of the process in general. And it's kind of a luxury on your part, uh, working for a company like that, that allows for that because most of the time you just don't get that because the budget's run out. When people like you, you can't shoot anything. We got no more money left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and so you're sort of stuck with that. Um, I mean, people I just, like large large films schedule mm-hmm. it. Like large films schedule it, and they know that you know you're finishing in uh, in January uh, or sorry December. We've got directors yep. edit, then we've got the studio viewing, and come April May we'll be doing some pickups, and that's scheduled and budgeted and. The idea that, um, listen, again, part of the reason why that was in the news was because people need to read about Star Wars. And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people need to read about it and people make money when people read their stories about Star Wars. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, the, it's the unfortunate yucky side of our business that, that, that somebody will report and write about something and make it sound like a bigger deal than it is in order yeah. to get clicks. And, um, you know, it, it, it's not going to sell a click if you go, you know, Rogue One are um, making the, uh, a film better for the viewer um, by adding some re- some pickup days and, and dividing and conquering, knowing that the end date's like, the, the reality wouldn't sell. It's boring. It's boring. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> of course. But, but of it, course. you start to talk about, you know, drama and this and that and wow, yeah, that's, that sells clicks. So... It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a bit of a yucky side of things. Yeah, it's but it's that way in general. Even with other things outside of the movie industry, and and I think that I have to do an episode on it because I, I've talked to a lot of writers and journalists and how journalism is basically dying because no one is able to afford a good journalist because no one's actually paying for the news and everything's mm. for free. So it's it's this really awkward game. And then when you actually look, cause I've been asked to write articles and when you actually see the breakdown of what you get paid, it's disgusting where it's just like, Oh, I need to have like 150,000 clicks on this thing for me to make $200. Like, yeah. so it's, it's, it's like really kind of a crappy side of the business. I'm um, hoping that, I'm hoping that, um, that everybody sort of, I don't know, through Apple news, for example, I, I don't know, I, I don't know how that works and if that's a good thing for news or not, but, but I agree, it, it, you get what you pay for ultimately. And if you're reading free news, then yeah. you've got to yeah. watch where it comes from and what it's saying. Cause it's, uh, somebody's paying for it somewhere. So yeah, yeah, totally. Well, let's, let's move on a bit and let's get into some of my favorite stuff, which is lighting. Um, and, uh, I would say that you have this consistent, like beautiful softness in a lot of your work that I really love, love, love. Um, and, uh, I think a lot of that comes down to two things from, from the outside perspective. It seems like it comes down to your lens choices and it also comes down to how, uh, you like to light scenarios. Um, what's, uh, what's your process of choosing lenses 
for each project? Do you have a, like a set of lenses that you like, this is how I see the world? Or are you specifically choosing lenses based upon the story? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, a couple of questions need to get answered first. And that is the ratio that you're shooting into. You know, so, mm-hmm. if you know, um, obviously, if you're shooting 185, uh, then it's unlikely that you're going to use anamorphic lenses. You can, mm-hmm. uh, particularly mm-hmm. with a larger format, you can crop down and, and still get the resolution you need. Um, but it's unlikely that you're going to choose anamorphics. Um, if you're shooting 240, then you've got both options. And then it becomes a, an aesthetic choice that the director uh, and yourself um, like or don't like. Like, for example, Matt Reeves, who I did Let Me In With and I'm doing Batman With, loves anamorphic lens, just loves mm-hmm. anamorphic lens. Um, Garth Davis, who I did Lion With and Mary Magdalene, does mm-hmm. not care for an anamorphic lens. And it's for him, it's what it does to the backgrounds and to the characters. And by, but both of them are 100% correct in their opinion. You know, it doesn't, just because Matt thinks something doesn't make Garth wrong or vice versa. It just means right. their aesthetic in the world is, is different. So I have to be, um, I have definitely have to be kind of mindful of that because that director needs to look at these images every day that we shoot and then every day that they cut. And so if I'm if I'm giving them lenses that are that are not their their choice or not their aesthetic, then that's a problem, um, of course. Yeah. So it begins there. It becomes a conversation, and and some directors uh, know instantly what they love, and some you have to you, you test. Like, but but sometimes it changes too. On on zero dark thirty, Catherine and I um, tested a ton of lenses, and we chose. I think uh, anamorphics. We, we I think we were going to get G series anamorphics on the mm-hmm. Alexa, and we were prepping them. And 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 Catherine rang me sort of, you know, early on in the prep, and said, "Yeah, Greg, I'm I'm looking at some of our tests again. I'm not feeling the anamorphic. I, I think we need to go spherical." And here's why. Uh-huh. And she laid it out, and she was a thousand percent correct. And again, you know, you go through. The process, we were right when we chose anamorphic, but she was absolutely right when she went anamorphic's too cinematic. It it mm-hmm. reminds me too much of a of a movie. This we mm-hmm. have to run the line of a procedural movie. This has to be mm-hmm. uh, not pretty per se, traditionally pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, we we can't lean into all the beautiful things that anamorphic gives us. We've got to actually lean away from that, which she was a hundred percent right by. So. You know, we, we quickly sh- shifted over to, to Cooks and, uh, and Optical Elites and and the movie looks how it looks because of that. So, mm, mm. Um, yeah. It's, so it's, it's, it's nice to hear because that's, that's storytelling decision-making. And I think a big mistake that we make when we're younger is that we get obsessed with certain tools and, and tricks aesthetically and we just want to get our hands on those and we want to play around in that playground. But... Like uh, her, her understanding that there is sort of a stigma that comes with a specific look that's custom built into the audience to begin with. So even before any word is said, just the format itself says spe- something specific to a general audience. And understanding that and whether or not that works for your story and doesn't work for your story, that's good decision making when you're when you're talking about what lenses to use. It's it's nice to hear that because I, I think. A lot of times, especially outside of the, in, well, I don't want to say outside of the industry, but 
on a lower budget level, a lot of us are just sort of uh, consistently hit with like, this is the tool to use for the job and you have to buy this and these are the specific lenses that you should be using. You should shoot this on red and technology, yep. technology. Um, but at the end of the day, we're supposed to be making these decisions because it's good for the story, right? Good for the characters. Hey folks, it's Liam. We experienced some technical issues at this section, so I had to cut out a part. No big deal. Normally, I try to cut it without giving any explanation, but this is one of the things where Mike's deep dive into why choosing lenses is really important for the narrative. I felt just needed to be included, but it sounds a little weird when we jump back into Greg's next part because he just continues talking on what's the next step after choosing those lenses. So I just wanted to clarify where the cut was. It's going to sound a little different, uh, but that's what it is. We're not cutting anything out. You're getting all the good info, and uh, yeah, we're back to the show. Um, so yeah, so then you get into a, a, a conversation with the director, and you end up deciding what the feel is, and that therefore uh, helps you choose the lenses. The next step is figuring out what format you're shooting on, because... If you're shooting on film, you can use the natural softness of the, of the film to choose slightly sharper lenses. But if you're shooting digitally, mm-hmm. uh, even at large format, and this is something that as the formats got larger, um, the, you know, the Arri went to, like the Red went to a bigger format and, and Arri went to a bigger format. And, and the same rules don't apply for lenses on a large format that they do for 16mm camera or a 16 mil format mm. you can afford for the lenses to resolve less yet still have that feeling of, of i wouldn't say sharpness because i hate sharpness but you need it to resolve you, you need it not to look blurry you know um so it's right, about right, finding right, right. the special line in the uh, uh in the in the sand where you actually have a, a resolving sharp image but it feels um soft and it's such a terrible word to use but it feels like it has some character. like creamy it's almost like this creamy feel that that yes. it has where or almost painterly because there's a difference between when you're doing like super hhd where it's just unbelievably crisp and then there's something about that sort of creaminess and i think a lot of that comes personally i think a lot of that comes from atmosphere too like whether or not you're using sure. haze and smoke and all that sure. kind of stuff that also does it as well um and then, and then the lens choices at the same time. Um, and then when, as far as, um, you, see, it's a, it's a difficult question because I had a bunch of fans asking questions about lighting for you and it, lighting should be dictated by the story as well. So it's not like you have one trick that you do for close-ups or one trick that you do for some specific task. It's, it's all fluid. 100%. Right? The thing is that it's got to feel, well, again, if I if I say it's got to be or I do it like this, I, I'm breaking every single rule that I'm trying to to avoid, which is having a thing, being a having a signature style or having a okay. He is the he's the dude that shoots it, dot 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 dot. Because I I, mm-hmm. I I don't like boxing myself in. Now, obviously, I have an aesthetic, and that's as a result of you know, whatever references I, I ingested as a young person and as a young DP. But, but I would like to think that I could turn on a dime where if I needed to do something more film noir, a bit more sharp edges and backlight and silhouettes, 
that I could do that without much fuss, you know, and um, for me, there is a naturalism that I do definitely steer towards and that naturalism Mm -hmm. is, uh, I haven't really done any kind of out, like outlandish um, fruity movies, you know, I haven't really done anything like that and I would love to, like I would love somebody to ring me and offer me a, you know, a, 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 a fruity kind of uh, musical or, or something, you know, like, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, so I would love that challenge. I would love that challenge to, to, to do a fruity film, but still make it something that I can digest as a, as a viewer. Cause I'm effectively, as you just said, you know, the director and the DP are the eyes of the audience. So I feel like if I'm looking at an image and I feel a bit uh, confused by it or a bit, um, you know, I, I'm, I, then I, the audience is going to feel that too subconsciously, but I'm the person who can yeah. consciously make the changes to the image. So the audience feels something subconsciously because I understand things consciously that they don't. So that that's the, the lighting thing that I, if it, if, if it feels wrong, if it feels overlit, um, if it feels unnatural, then, uh, then yeah, it's it's a problem. Hmm. And I guess the, that transitions into my next question, which is uh, in the pre-production and the planning of this stuff. And I know that there are different types of directors out there. There are directors that are incredibly visually oriented and storyboard and, and shot list every sort of scene. And then there are directors that like to work with actors and they leave a lot of that in the hands of the cinematographer. When you have an opportunity to start prepping a scene or start planning out coverage or start thinking about how you would shoot it. Is there a a system that you have in place for that? Is there a series of steps that you do in the beginning? It's it's all about referencing. It's about creating a picture in your mind and on your walls and in your director's mind about what this film feels like or what it's not, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. It's about ingestion of, of the materials that, that make it all add up. So that when you're standing on set looking at a lighting setup, that you can go, ah, it doesn't feel right. That lens doesn't feel right, or you know, and things get listen. Things change too as you start. You might start a movie and say, I feel like my primary lens is going to be the fifty and the seventy-five, but then you realise that every time you shoot on the fifty, that it's too too wide, and you need to actually mm-hmm. get yourself in a sixty mil lens, or you, you need to widen out on the 75 or, or there's something like, and this is where, you know, when you work differently with different directors, different people have different responses. And you, you know, I mean, I was just talking to, to, to Matt about some of the stuff we shot early on, on, on Batman and not some of it, a shot. And he was like, I reckon we're about two inches too tight on that shot. And I'm like, you're right. We should have been one size longer and back or a touch wider. And so that now conversation is done. We don't, we won't ever make that mistake again. And he probably won't use the shot anyway. So it doesn't matter. So, you know, it's kind of like, it's a, it's a learning discovery as you go. And, um, based on the ingredients that you have in your kitchen, uh, when you start the, the process. Are you still are you still nervous with 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 the amount of films that you've done at this point? Are you still nervous on first day on the set? Um, 
there is there is never a first day on the set anymore. You always seem to be shooting pre days and and pre shoot days, and um, there's always something that you 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 do in advance of the actual shoot. Um, but yeah, yeah. I guess so. I mean, to be to be honest, yeah. I mean the the first day that you have to do something serious that's going to make the movie, yeah. I mean, it's like, are these lenses right? Uh, is this the right choice of format? Are we doing the right? Is this the right lot? Like everything is, um, everything is hangs in the balance. You know the, yeah, yeah. I mean the first, um, the first day is always a a bit of finding a rhythm. You know, and if it's mm-hmm. a crew that you've worked with before, that helps, but. Generally, it's not everybody that you've worked with before. It, there's different art people or different, uh, you know, sound people or whatever. But 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 getting the rhythm is always the hard part, and that's generally the biggest thing on the first day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is and the other thing that I find, but that I wanted to talk to you about too, is that when I did when I do lighting, oftentimes I think a lot of the audience members that listen to the show may not work in the in the film business, so they don't understand that to light a scene, especially if you're working with like major talent, you're bringing in stand-ins yep. and you're lighting with stand-ins, and sometimes when I'm lighting with stand-ins or people that are just standing in for me, I have trouble making the light work 100% or I just can't seem to find that magic. And then I always feel that when the talent walks in, it's like, oh, there it is. There's this unspoken magical thing that I wasn't actually doing with the light. It's just that we physically want to look at this human yeah. being for a period of time. I mean, do you yeah. feel the same I mean, I way? Think that, I mean, it, it's, it sounds like an obvious thing to people who don't stand on set. Well, yeah, of course, it's Brad Pitt. Um, duh, like no one can stand in for you and have the same something that Brad Pitt has. He's Brad Pitt. He's got that. Like it's no, it, it, it seems really obvious, but it's not because you're right. You get this, you're lighting and you go, eh, or, 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 or you've lit your, the, the flip side of that coin is that you may have lit your stand in really well. And then your main actor comes out <laughs> and there might be very deep recessed yeah. eyes or different, whatever. And you're like, Oh, Okay, hang on. Yeah. So that's, again, that's a learning curve. You go, <laughs> I, I know that I might need to lower the light level, uh, lower the height of the light to, to reach into persons. There, there are actors, though, that do like to stand in for themselves, which, which, uh, which I find interesting. That's a debate that I'm willing to have on set with a, with a director or, a, or a, um, an actor if that's something they should do. Oh, do you do you not agree with that, or do you think well, that's a thing? And, and this is the honest truth, and I will I'd happily say this to any actor that wants to stand in for themselves. I'm, I would love that for them to stand in for themselves, but but part of what I need as a DP when someone's standing in is focus. Like they can't be talking, they can't be looking over their shoulder talking to the person behind them. They can't be looking at their shoe. Mm-hmm. They can't be checking their phone. Uh, like I, I need. I need some focus. And and generally, if there's an actor on set, they're they're, they're talking to the director, which is valid right they should be um sure and so sure. there are times i've kind of like had to say to say to an actor and a director listen guys do me a favor I, I just need a i need someone just to focus on for a minute can i bring the stand in um and, and it's it's a tricky one it's a tricky one because the the stand-in is is effectively a 
a C stand. I mean, I, I don't mean that disrespectfully. Um, it, uh, sure. They're effectively a, a C stand. I need them to to stand still and um, focus, and you know, and and on, on June we had a few. We went through a few stand-ins that were kind of when they stood in, they were, they came in, they were joking around, and again, I'm not against the idea of someone having fun, but but if if I'm at the monitor and I need to see somebody when they look through the window, and I go back to the monitor, and then mm-hmm. I have to say, "Dude, look," and like if I have to say it every time, it's a waste of my breath. So we yeah. we figured out we had some. I'd much prefer a stand-in that has the right amount of focus than a stand-in that looks like the person I'm lighting. So. You know, on 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 June, we we went through a few stand-ins, and I found a couple of really solid stand-ins that that you know became integral to me to me as a on set. You know, and I made sure they were well uh, well clapped for at the end of the film because they were they were m- m- instrumental <laughs> in making sure that I could do my job. Yeah, because a lot of people don't realize, and this is something that comes from portrait photography, a, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, a few centimeters in the distance between a nose and a cheekbone changes how you light yeah. everything, you know? And light is such a, fa- I have such a love affair with light, and light is such a fascinating thing. It's almost like this fluid, the way it splashes, and the way it bounces, and the way it wraps, and the different diffusions and different lights you use, and how it affects their skin, and like you, I'm sure you and I could sit here and talk yeah. for four hours Positive. on the light. Um, but it's that's such an interesting little uh, conversation to have about the standards because there's nothing more fucking frustrating than trying to find those subtleties, especially if you're doing close-up work and you're like, this is yeah. essential. The lighting is, is, is essential to the emotion of this thing and how do I get it to be, how do I get that perfect little eye light or how do I get that, that jawline to look correct or how do I make this person seem like a dreamlike mm. being? Um, and the standards are fucking really yeah. important for that. Yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, I find generally I, I learn quite quickly when, when a stand is there and then the first team come on and the differences and I have to then change. I mean, listen, it's, there are times I have to say, I'm sorry, um, Mr. Mr. Actor. Um, I, I need to make a change because it's not right. And would you mind doing me a favor and just looking in that direction and holding that pose for a sec? And that's where if you've got a good lighting team, you've got guys in all the stands, you've got the, the DMX board operator that you can play with levels and you can hopefully quickly without wasting too much time, just, just finagle the, the light. And hopefully that does the job, reducing the levels, moving it down a bit, whatever it is. Um, if it doesn't, then, it's back to the drawing board and sorry, I, I need to make a massive change. Um, I need 10 more minutes, you know, and, and, and that's part of the, the, the game, isn't it? Like you, you never want to waste yeah. time on set. You never want to waste a director's time with an actor ever, but you also are responsible for this thing existing in a hundred years. And if suddenly you're watching the movie and this actor looks bad or looking bad is not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's a good thing for the drama, but if if the the lighting doesn't look appropriate and it draws you out of the film, well then that needs to be fixed. So um, it's a it's a it's a it's a fine balance, you know. It's a fine balance between how much you um, how much you sort of take the time to do that. Yeah, and and a good DP does a good DP understands that balance. A good DP understands when 
when it's time to get the coverage and don't worry about the specular highlights of the background and when it's time to actually dial this in. And, and I think I try to have that communication with my cinematographer where it's like, this is, this is the time. Like, this is the time for you to take the time, make this stuff look really great, because those other shots are literally going to end up on screen for about, like, two, three frames. So let's just move on from there. Um, I'm going to need um, to wrap this up in five minutes, Mike. Is there – should we – Sure, yeah, man. I was just – Probably less, actually. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to wrap it up for you because, I, like I said, I don't, don't want to hold you, you up. I'm sorry. So, I guess it's taken so long to finally do this thing with you, and, like, it's – this is the type of day I'm having. I'm sorry, like it's, and I just I forgot that phone call. I mean, I I, I thought it was tomorrow because someone's calling from New Zealand, and I'm like, oh, it's Friday. That's right, it's Friday today, not Thursday. Anyway, sorry, dude. It's totally fine. At some point, I, after you guys do Batman, yeah. come back on the show and we'll have oh, a longer sure, conversation. For sure. But um, the last question I'll ask you is what I usually ask all the guests because there's a lot of young cinematographers that are definitely tuning into this. Um, I would say. Advice-wise on like getting in with a crew, like what do you think is the smartest way for a young cinematographer to meet or to get in with the right team of people and find a good director? I'm sure film school is a good thing because um, there are lots of people. Uh, finding a group of people that are, that are doing things and making things I, I think is the trick, you know, and, you know, I had my little film school equivalent uh, with exit films in Melbourne, I had lots of directors and cinematographers and people that were just coming in and out. But a lot of artists, you know, a lot of people I know went through film school, and, and I think what they got out of film school was not just the learning from the lecturers; it was that that sense of community. Um, mm. I think you just need to start. I mean, if you're a cinematographer and you want to shoot um, a a a great project, you find a director who is around your level um, and you you email them and you hassle them to work with them and offer them whatever it is. They might already have their own cinematographer, but you like, well, I'll come on as a second unit. Like, or, or you email a DP and say, I'm happy to come on as a second unit or something. Like, it's just important to keep your wheels turning, you know, and I, I think it's important to keep your wheels turning with people who have are in the position uh, that you either want to be in or – that you respect the work of that you know you can help their work and vice versa. So it's like it's like just injecting yourself into a conversation when you're at a party. Like it's kind of a bit like that. You, you just have to be a little bit forthright and go, hey, uh, here I am and uh, let's let's make something or I'll come and help you. Or you know, I remember back really early on when I was started to shoot, I had a lot of people kind of who were not shooting, they were like, oh yeah, any any help you need, we'll come and help and I really want to get into the industry. This is me, bear, bear in mind, say, doing my first short film. Okay, so, mm -hmm. and I remember there were a number of people that really wanted to get out of their job working at the photography store and they wanted to get into the film business or whatever it was. And I'm like, cool, all right. And I remember there was one event. We did this short film and we had a, it was a Saturday night shoot and we were shooting in a, in a, on, a, on, a, on a football field. And I emailed mm -hmm. or texted all these people, not all, there's like three, and said, hey, need a hand, come out, love you to come and help. And, and two of them went, all of them went, yep, sure. Two of them a day before pulled out, went, oh, no, no, we, we can't, we're busy. And I went, bang, there, there's your, there's the distinction between the people that will be <laughs> doing what they want to do and the people that will talk about doing what they want to do but will not do it because 
those two people felt like they could have spent Saturday night in a bar rather than than working for free um, in, on a football field. In, in you know what I mean? Like it's it kind of it sorts the the mm-hmm. wheat from the chaff. Like it's you know the the, the the sexist term is the men from the boys. Like it's it, it sorts out the people who will do something or not do something. So just yeah, commit and do it, and just just keep wheels turning, keep working hard. That episode just went by way too quick. Did it not? Right? I mean, I'm so happy that I got the time with him uh, to be able to ask these questions. And then just hearing that he goes through a lot of the same problems that I've been through on set. And just hearing that even at his level, he's still dealing with, like, how do I light actors? And how do I get stand-ins in there to do the right thing? It's just nice to hear. You know? It's nice to know because then I'm getting a glimpse at the fact that when you finally get to that point, it's the same. It's just bigger. But all the same things that you've been teaching yourself at home and all your friend shoots and finding those rhythms and all those tricks, they just go with you, right? Because that's the fear. You get that job. You get that big gig. You're showing up on set for the first day and you're like, oh man, this, it's all going to be different. Nah. It's just bigger. It's just bigger. All those tricks that you're learning now, all that stuff, that toolbox that you're putting together right now, you're going to be reaching into that on day one on any of these big jobs. So thank you again, Greg, for being on the show. Really appreciate it, my man. And uh, what I would like to do, uh, I talked to him a bit offline. I'm going to hit him up after Batman comes out and try to continue this conversation. Uh, Hopefully after COVID, he won't be uh, as insane because... We were talking prior to the recording, life changes for a lot of people, especially get people in the industry and in the business because you're working so much. Um, and so they're trying to balance meetings and work and film, but also trying to balance home life at the same time without any support. Um, and so life is just insane for a lot of people right now. Um, but. He's super cool, wasn't complaining about anything, and really was able to make the time for us. So, again, thank you so much, Greg, for being on the show. Um, Thank you guys for listening. Hope you guys dug it. I keep telling you that I'm going to get bigger and better guests, and we do. We do. Right? Have we been been, uh, coming through for you guys? Write to me. Let me know. You're like, Mike, well, you like these guests. They're really good. Keep doing it. Or just say, look, stop talking. (laughs) send me a message that says hey dude shut the fuck up all right dude yep i will see you guys later right (laughs) i don't know how to wrap this show up it's such a whirlwind going through it It such a fast interview but man i have learned a few things in there oh and more than anything else i think i had some of my nerves settled Um, and it's it's fascinating to know that if I had been just a little bit earlier in my career, just a, just a little bit earlier doing music videos and stuff, I probably would have met him earlier too. So it's weird how this business works. Okay, guys, I'm rambling. So thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, 
Uh, we're releasing twice a week, so we'll have our special COVID episode, Friday episodes coming out as long as we're still in the quarantine. Um, and uh, fingers crossed and everything. Uh, hopefully when quarantine comes out, hopefully a movie happens, and then everything changes, and uh, we'll see what the show ends up becoming, which could be something much cooler. Uh, so stay with us for the ride. There's plenty to listen to. I love you all. I appreciate you all. And I'll see you next Tuesday.